we make promises every day. Promises large and promises small. Considering even this morning that you've perhaps made many promises. Perhaps to a friend, to a parent, to a spouse, to God, even to yourself. Promise I'll take out the trash. Promise I'll clean my room. Promise I'll stop acting like a fool. Promise I'll be better tomorrow. We're accustomed to not only giving promises, but being recipients of promises. We tend to accept promises from those who have proven themselves to be trustworthy. In other words, they keep their promises. And to tend to quickly doubt promises from those who rarely keep them. Painfully, many of us have been recipients of so many unfulfilled promises. Promises from parents that never come to reality. Promises from spouses that never see the light of day. It's these unmet promises that tend to harden our hearts, discourage us. They might even cause us to question God's promises. The Bible, as you may know, is filled with promises. God regularly promises to do certain things. Promises are made. One could really honestly spend a lifetime reading through the pages of Scripture, thinking about all the promises that God has made in His Word. The Bible itself could be summarized as promises made... And promises kept. You see, when God makes a promise, He actually fulfills it. More than that, when God actually makes a promise, He has the ability to fulfill it. Oftentimes, our unmet promises are because we don't actually have the ability to fulfill them. We promise things, but we are unable to fulfill those promises. And over the next few weeks, I want to consider this promise that God has made. God has made many promises in his word. Uh, Many times in the scriptures, God has promised things. And I want us to consider in Luke's gospel over the next few weeks. So we're only going to spend four weeks with Luke um, and then move from there. Uh, But here this morning, we're going to look at Luke chapter 1 and consider over the next couple weeks the birth narratives. Um, Many of you familiar with these passages, but I hope are helpful and fruitful to us this morning. Luke chapter 1, I invite you to turn there. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. And I'm going to pause right now. I need prayer. So please. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray right now. We've prayed a lot in this service, but Lord, I just sense an overwhelming need to pray. Lord, the enemy is at work in my own soul and in the souls of so many here today. So many distractions here today. And Father, we pray that those would be put away. We've gathered here to hear your word. 
Nothing else matters in this world than what you have to say right now. Open our deaf ears this morning and speak. In Christ's name, amen. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great, and we be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, Son of God. Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Well, friends, the book of Luke, as we've jumped into it, just to set a couple contextual things for us. Uh, Luke has written a two-volume set. Luke and Acts. Uh, This is uh, volume one of a two-volume companion set. Not necessarily meant to be read apart. Luke is writing to a friend of his, Theophilus, to give him, as he describes in the very beginning in verse 1, look at chapter 1, verse 1, to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. Luke, many scholars believe, compiled much of his birth narratives from Mary herself. As he says here, he got those from the beginning. Well, you really can't have anyone in the beginning of the whole story as as Mary herself, right? She kind of kickstarts the whole story, her and Elizabeth, her cousin. Much of these stories, this is why Matthew, if you were considered the birth narratives in Matthew's gospel, are not as detailed as they are here. They are written more from Joseph's perspective than they are Mary's perspective. And so we are getting a glimpse, if you will, of Jesus's mother's perspective. A helpful one, I hope. So we see how Mary gives us, and of course Luke writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit compiles this orderly account of our Lord's coming. And over the next few weeks, we're going to consider this king, as I've mentioned, who's come. Now, I've chosen these texts particularly in light of where we were all of 2018. It's not by coincidence that we are here this morning. There's purpose behind this text. Uh, it's not by coincidence that we considered all of 1 Samuel in its glory in this anticipation of a king. In fact, 
We won't have a lot of time. I won't spend much time here. But, but if you will look at Luke's gospel and the way it's written and compare how 1 Samuel is compiled, you'll notice similar themes. A barren woman begins the story. Of course, in the story of Samuel, it is, it is his mother Hannah that is barren. And here we are, we are told of a, of a barren priest. story of a childlessness. And it's in the midst of that context of childlessness that a child is born. In the midst of the pain that so often accompanies childlessness and barrenness comes great joy and happiness. God in His glory is revealing to us in this text who His Son is. If we could summarize the text I read just a moment ago, we could summarize it in this way. God the Son was miraculously born by the power of the Holy Spirit to fulfill the role of Davidic king. Jesus came into the world to be a king, to reign and to rule over God's people. Now, while Luke in his text doesn't point to the what's considered the eternality, that the Son is eternal. And He is. John deals with that in 1 John chapter 1. Here, Luke focuses on the role that the Son of God will play here on earth. The the rule that He will have. The reign that He will have over all creation. So while 1 Samuel told us about the king we all needed, Luke tells us the king that we need has come. King Jesus is his name. So in our passage this morning, we want to consider two aspects of the promise God gives to Mary. I will briefly talk about Mary. We will have a lot of time to spend with her, um, considering her faith, her humility. We don't want to neglect that. I felt that as a Protestant, uh, we tend to neglect Mary in reaction to uh, Roman Catholic theology, uh, right? So we're, we're, we kind of swing the pendulum to the other side and, and neglect Mary a bit uh, because we don't want to uh, hedge anywhere close to Roman, Catholic, Roman Catholic theology about Mary. Um, but we don't want to miss Mary in the text either. She's there. <laughs> She's a real person. And we want to see her humility and her faith. But two aspects I want us to see about the promised child given by Gabriel. Gabriel gives a promise here in the text, as you saw. First, this promised child will be a king. It makes very emphatically clear that this child is to be a king. And then we see also that this child will be holy. And we want to consider what that means. In verses 26 through 33, we see that the promised child will be king. In that opening paragraph there, we are given some uh, contextual markers. We're told a little bit about the historical context in which Jesus was born. Look with me there. Luke begins by identifying the time. It's the sixth month. Now, he's not referring to the sixth month of the year, but rather to the sixth month of 
Elizabeth's birth, or, or Elizabeth's, uh, um, uh, where she is uh, pregnant. And so we see here that after this six months has gone by, Gabriel comes to Mary and says to her that you also will have a child. We're told some other geographical and biological markers in the text. We are told that she goes to a particular, excuse me, Gabriel goes to a particular city, to the city of Galilee, named Nazareth. In other words, Gabriel goes to nowhere in particular. Where Elizabeth is in Jerusalem, because her husband is employed as a priest at the temple. Mary is out in the wilderness, if you will, an old country town. Uh, One of those towns you just pass through when when you're going somewhere important. Insignificant, unimportant, little old Galilee Named Nazareth. To a rather unnamed family member who we say, who we're told is from the house of David. The Lord's mother was quite humble. She was not of any nobility. Though she was a daughter of David, she wasn't rich, she wasn't popular. She wasn't well known in the the big metropolitan city of Jerusalem. Very unlike Elizabeth. The Lord's servant here is described as one who's humble. Even as the angel speaks with Mary, Mary is humble. We'll think more about that next week in, in her faith as she anticipates this coming king. We see Mary here in the text is saying, whoa, I am not worthy to receive such recognition. If you look with me at verse 20, 28, we're told that Gabriel goes to this Mary who is engaged to a man named Joseph and who is herself a virgin. And in verse 28, we are told that he greets her. Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Hail Mary, full of grace. That's what he says in the Latin. This is where our Roman Catholic friends gather some of their theology. But the point of the text isn't to emphasize Mary's worthiness as it emphasizes God's graciousness. She is favored not because she is significant, because she is special, because she is perfect, but because she was divinely and sovereignly chosen as the vessel to bear God's Son. Twice in the text we are told that she is a recipient of God's grace. That word, oh, favored one, is, means grace. Oh, gracious one, oh, Recipient of grace. Later in verse 30, Mary's freaked out of her mind. Why is an angel coming to me? Um, Why is this happening to me? Look at verse 30. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have 
found grace with God, favor with God. Now, now, again, we don't want to imply from this that, that there was something of worthiness or meritous in Mary. Mary herself points throughout the text that I am nobody. I am merely a servant of the Lord. And a humble one at that. But I don't want you to miss her faith. Throughout the story, we see Mary willingly submitting to the Lord. Willingly submitting to the Lord's plan. She doesn't say, no, I'm good. It's just like, go next door. Uh, I, I know, uh, actually, my friend Mary, uh, my, my other friend Mary, she'd like to do it, you know. But she willingly accepts God's sovereign plan for her life. No, there was nothing deserving of such grace. She becomes gracious. In fact, when she sings her song later, reflecting on God's grace, remember what her cousin says to her, Elizabeth. Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. And truly so. For she was the Lord's humble servant, willing to submit to his plan. Was Gabriel comes with the message from the Lord? We see this message here in our text. And so I want to look at a few things that, that he says. Gabriel comes, verse 31, look at the message. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Gabriel here promises a Savior. The name Jesus, Joshua in the Hebrew, means the Lord saves. Uh, Matthew, in his narrative of the same Story as he reports what Gabriel told to Joseph that Jesus will be his name and he will save God's people from their sins. This, of course, is a is a reminder of that promise that God gave to to Isaiah in chapter seven and verse 14, that the virgin shall bear a son shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Gabriel comes and says, listen, you're going to have a child. You're going to bear a son. You're going to have a, a son. And this son, I want you to name him Jesus. Now, again, this is, this is brimming with sort of Old Testament announcements of kings. This is how all the well-known leaders of Israel were announced in a very similar way. Great significance for the God's people is this angel comes and says, your son will be a savior. So name him Jesus. We see also in the text in verse 32 that he will be great. As we consider, what does Luke mean that he's going to be great does it mean that he's going to be powerful? Does it mean that he's going to be, you know, awesome, amazing, great? He's going to be great. He's going to be a great guy. No, Luke has a bigger idea in mind in the story. And of course, because we're just kind of jumping in here. 
we didn't consider the story that preceded it, which was the story of John the Baptist and how John the Baptist would come into the world and he would be great. Remember what Jesus said of John the Baptist? No one has been born of woman. No one greater has been born of woman. What Luke is doing here is saying, yeah, John the Baptist is great. Jesus said so. But Jesus is greater. Jesus is supreme. Jesus is the one who will reign and rule. He is, the, he is the great one. He is the high and lifted up one. He's greater than John. Luke here is describing for us through uh, what Gabriel said, the kind of king Jesus will be. Look again at verse 32. He says that he will be called the son of the most high. The son of the most high. He will be the son of God. Literally, Luke's just using uh, typical language to refer to God. He's saying that he will be the son of God. More than that, we see that he will be a king. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. Remember, Jesus is being born into the Davidic line. He is being born into one particular family in Israel, David's family. This is why that promise in 2 Samuel that we heard Alex read earlier is so vitally important to understanding who Jesus is. God made a promise long ago that David, you will have a son. Now, all of the stories of the kings of Israel is like, is this the one? Is this the one? Is this the one? And like dominoes falling, it was no, no, whoa, very, no, 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 not going to be him. Jeroboam, no, no, not going to be like him. In fact, that resounding sound of Jeroboam walked in sin. And all the kings of Israel like him. In in other words, there is this, this palpable question in all of the Old Testament. When is this Davidic king going to come? As the prophets begin to prophesy judgment against the people of Israel for their rebelliousness and sin because they followed their wicked kings. There was the promise that was continually held out that one day there would come a righteous king. A king who would sit on the throne of David, but of his kingdom there shall be no end. Verse 33 points to two aspects of the kingdom of Christ. That his reign will be permanently and his king, his reign will be eternally. He says to him, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There will be no end. Now, you might think that this is saying the same thing. It's not exactly saying the exact same thing. One speaks to permanence, the other to length. In other words, it speaks to permanently he will be king. In other words, no one will dethrone him. There there will be no coup. There will be no revolt and revolution that will overthrow this king when he comes. When he sits on his throne, he sits on his throne forever. In other words, his kingdom will never see an end. This is why then Gabriel points to the eternality of the king. That it is an eternal kingdom. It's a kingdom that outlasts all other kingdoms. It's fascinatingly, as you consider church history, as you consider the history of creation, how many kingdoms there have been. But kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. Kings come and kings go. Even in our own country, though we don't have a king, we we understand that 
you don't like the current president, just wait four years. He may have a new one. Or eight at the worst. As Americans, we're, we're kind of accustomed to having new leadership all the time. Just imagine in like a monarch in France where the king reigns or his family reigns for, for hundreds of years. It's like, man, we'll never get out of this. And it's refreshing to know that policies will change because we'll have a new president. The point that Gabriel is making that Luke is communicating to us is that Christ is a king who will reign forever and ever. His kingdom will not wear out. It will not run out of money. Its military forces will not grow weak. He will reign forever and ever and ever. And the point we want to draw out in application for our lives is submission to Christ as king. The text says that Jesus is a king and all those that submit to him are in his kingdom. We understand what a king is, right? King gets to tell you what to do, how to live. King is a king. This isn't some metaphorical language that the Bible is using. It is saying literally he's a king and he will reign. Jesus isn't like, you know, you can do whatever you want and I'll be your king. Jesus is saying, if you want me to be your king, then you've got to live how I tell you to live. See, that's the story of the Bible. That's the story of all of Scripture. There's there's only two ways to live. Either submitting to God as king or trying to make your own kingdom. Either your king or God's king. There's not some middle category in in the Bible. There's, There's this really a clear black and white. Either Christ is your king and you submit to him and go his way. Or you're a king or queen, however you want to, you know, whatever title you want to use. Either you're in charge or Christ is in charge. Well, we know this becomes very clear, right? With his disciples, he, he says to them, hey, you want to follow me? Yes, Jesus, we want to follow you. We've seen some really incredible things with you. We love you. It's awesome. Uh, we want to follow you. Okay, here's the deal. You've got to deny yourself as king. You've got to give up your throne. You've got to give up control. And you've got to see me as king. Which means you've got to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. To follow Jesus means you obey Jesus, right? See, in our sinful, rebellious flesh, so often we we do things our own way. We tend to think that that our way is best. We tend to look at God's word and we tend to look at commandments as bad, as hurtful, restrictive. Like God doesn't want us to have any fun. You know, we look at rules as like, man, you know, Jesus is just a jill, you know, killjoy. He doesn't, doesn't want me to have happiness and fun and See, that's what Satan does. He lies to us. And he tells us, if you, you go your own way and it looks really good and glorious, then you will have the happiness you seek. And, 
And friends, I don't have to tell you that living life your own way, you know the pain of it. Christian, you you don't have to convince your non-Christian friends that they're a sinner. They know it. Perhaps more than any time in the year, they feel it. The weight of their own depravity. I don't know why. These tend to be the seasons where the pressures of work, financial insecurities, and just making dumb decisions in life tend to manifest themselves. Why? Because we get around family. And the last thing we want to do is show ourselves to be losers. We get around successful family members, seem to have their life all put together just right. We, we get around our kids and we're kind of ashamed at the things that we've been doing. Or our kids are ashamed of what they've been doing. Regardless, shame tends to kind of brim up in our souls. See, we know, we know deep down. And every day we try to drown out those feelings. We, we try to numb the pain of living life our own way. But the reality is it will lead to death every single time. But we still go our own way. And Christ is calling us this morning to say, come. Go the narrow way and receive life. It's easy to go the the wide way. It's easy to it's easy to go to destruction. Submitting to Christ as king means that we come and live under his good rule and reign. There's never been a good king that's ever reigned or ruled. There's never been a good and perfect president, right? Never been one. But there has been one when Christ comes. And we can know that his judgments are good and right. His discipline is good and right. That his reign will be forever. God promised that the virgin born child would be a king over Israel. That he would reign and rule. Spiritually, he is reigning over us as a church. This is his church. Your money might keep the lights on, but might pay the pastor, but it's his church his bride it's not my church it's not your church Christ is king of his people he reigns and rules over us even this morning when when two or more are gathered in his name he promises I'll be there and I'll be there with all of my authority the child came to be a king and God fulfilled his long awaited promise That he gave to David. God is a promise keeping God. One whom never. Leaves a promise unfulfilled. We see secondly in the text. The promised child will be called. Holy. Not only will this child be a king. But he will be holy. Verse 34 comes this great. Mixture in Mary. Of both faith and confusion. Faith and confusion. Mary said to the angel Gabriel. 
How is this going to be since I'm a virgin? In the midst of her question, I think we see some faith here. She's not saying that this can't be. She just wants to know how. Notice she doesn't say, can this be? No. How will this be? In other words, she's demonstrating tremendous faith. She's not doubting this is possible. She's just wondering, like, how is this possible? How is this going to be possible? I'm a virgin, right? It's like biology 101. She's like, do I need to take you, Gabriel, and uh, teach you some biology? I know you're an angel. You might not be up on all these things, but biologically, this is impossible. Gabriel grins at her. Mary, let me tell you how. And in verses 34, 35 and following, we have before us, laid before this, this great doctrine of the incarnation. The how. The nuts and bolts, the pieces, if you will, of the incarnation. The angel says to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. This is how it's going to happen. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. In other words, Gabriel's answer is you will conceive by the Holy Spirit. Now, very clearly, this text does not mean that God impregnated Mary. Okay, so we reject the salacious and slanderous accusations of the Muslims who say that this is what that text means and reject it and say, no, God did not come and impregnate a human being, but rather the spirit of God bore life into her womb and united the eternal God, Jesus Christ, with human flesh. The eternal son of God was forever united together in that womb with humanity The God man drew near so that what was formed together in that womb was true God and true man, not some hybrid God, half God, half man. I remember often R.C. Sproul emphasizing it's not fully God and fully man. He felt that that phrase reflected a distortion of what the church historically taught, that it's true God from true God, as we read in the Nicene Creed. It's truly God and truly man. In other words, it's all the essence of God and all the essence of man united in one person. This is what theologians call the doctrine of the incarnation. You sang that word, the incarnate deity, today. This is the incarnation, the union of the God and man. I invite you just really quickly in your or not in your Bibles, but in your bulletins, to open your bulletins up, turn over to page uh, three, I think it is. There you'll or page four, the Nicene Creed. I'm going to show you a couple things here. I'm not going to reinvent the wheel, nor do I suggest any church reinvent the wheel. Um, These documents have been proven and tested by men and women way smarter than all of us, I think, combined. 
uh, over the last 2,000 years. And they have, through history, proven themselves to be what the scriptures teach about Jesus. Now, I want you to just focus on that, that main paragraph there. And we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten from the Father before all time. In other words, Jesus eternally existed. This is why I do not suggest you throw Jesus a birthday party because that's very confusing to children. And I'm serious. And maybe some adults are confused by it too. I'm confused by it. It communicates, so I don't think those that do it mean to communicate, that Jesus began in Mary's womb. The person of the, of the Trinity, the second person of the Trinity, did not begin at conception. All right? Like you and I begin at conception. Okay? Our life begins at conception. Christ's life is from before all time. He's eternal. He's always existed with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Always. Notice here it goes on. Light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. Not made. The earlier creed, the 325 version, uh, begotten, not born. It was confusing, so they cleaned it up in this completed version in 381. To emphasize that, yes, Jesus was born into this world the way you and I are born in this world. But his conception is unlike our conception in that he was not made the way you and I are made. To emphasize that God the Son is eternal, but yet human. Furthermore, the ancient creeds, and I think we collectively as a congregation, reject that Jesus physically existed as a human being before the incarnation. That it was at the incarnation that the eternal Son of God was united at that point with human flesh, never to be separated. This is the doctrine that we hold and believe. That Jesus Christ at the end of the day is God the Son in all the essence of God. He is, as Paul says, the image of the invisible God. The, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. This is what Gabriel is telling Mary. That little baby that you're going to give birth to is the eternal Son of God. And he has wrapped himself in human clothing. United for all of eternity. That he might die as a ransom for sinners. He clothed himself in human flesh. So that he might be our representative. The text goes on to say that it will be the power of the Holy Spirit that will do this work. The doctrine of the, the Trinity speaks also of the power of the Spirit. We see here the Holy Spirit has the same omnipotent power as the Most High. That the Holy Spirit is as fully God as the Son and the Spirit, that's what 381 is really all about. Making clear 
that not only the Son is fully God and that the Father is fully God, but that the Spirit of God is fully God as well. Well, as we see in the text, back to the text, we see that in the incarnation, Christ, this child, Jesus, being born into the world, will be called holy, the Son of God. Now, we're accustomed, I think, often when we see that word holy to mean morally pure. Right? He's holy. He's morally pure. Now, the text clearly has that implication. But more than that, the Bible uses the word holy to describe a person who is set apart for a particular purpose. The word holy itself means consecrated, set apart. That's what it means. Uh, Set apart for a particular purpose. So in that way, Gabriel is pointing to the Lord's particular work. What work is that? The work of saving sinners from their sins. In other words, the text points to the exclusivity of Jesus Christ in his work on the cross. That what is foreshadowed here is not merely that a child is being born, but this child has a particular purpose. That Christ has been united with human flesh so that he might live a holy and perfect set apart life. A life that is perfect, that he might die not only uh, that he might not only live as a perfect human being, but die a perfect death for sinners. For only the eternal God could die for sinners. The text also here points to God's omnipotent power to save. Verse 36 and 37 offers to us and to Mary assurances. How was she to know that that she could, this was even possible? Verse 36 Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. In other words, this older woman, Elizabeth, is going to have a child. And this miracle of a barren woman having a child was evidence that God could do the impossible. And then in verse 37, look there, Gabriel makes explicit the whole point of the entire section. For nothing will be impossible with God. There is great mystery in this text. Sure, many of us this morning are scratching our heads. I don't understand it. I understand it, but I don't understand it. It is a mystery. It evokes faith. If anyone was to tell you that believing in a virgin birth is easy, they don't know what they're talking about. This is crazy talk. What do you mean? Scientifically, biologically impossible. Maybe not today, with the invention of genetics, 
creating life and petri dishes. The point of the text is this is impossible. This is unbelievable. It evokes faith. It's not easy to believe. But that does not mean it's not true. It displays the exclusivity of Christ and the glory of God's power to create life when it's impossible. Now, God could have chosen any means, but he chose this means to bring his son into the world. And he does it that he might elicit our faith. And friend, if you doubt God's power to save, no, look, look, look no further to, than to the virgin birth. If you doubt whether or not God can free you from the d- domain of your sin, the chains of your sin, look no further than the virgin birth. If he can bring his son into the world through this miraculous means, then he can surely, miraculously, deliver you from your sin. He can save you through His Son's death and resurrection. God does the impossible because God reigns over all things. And our Lord Jesus was set apart to save us, to ransom us, to deliver us. He was the Messiah, the long-awaited One who came to ransom the true Israel from their sins. I began by telling you that God is a promise-keeping God. And He is. He makes a lot of promises. And one of the oldest promises that God ever made in all the Bible came at the beginning. When man fell, because they chose to live life their own way, when Adam and Eve said, God, we know you said no, but we really think this would be best for us. God judged them and punished them. And at that ceremony where God brought them there to him and says, here is your judgment, here is that, he gave out some promises. Everyone got a few. And he made one particular promise in Genesis 3.15 that would prove itself over and over again. He looked at that evil serpent who had tempted and tricked Eve. And he promised Satan something. He promised him a war. A war in which he would win. God, not Satan. I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring. And you shall bruise his heel. But one day, There's coming a child of Eve. There's coming a son of Eve who will crush your head to death. There in the garden, thousands of years before the manger, God made a promise to man that there would be a child born unlike any other child in all the world A child who would come and finally and fully destroy the wicked serpent. And throughout every page of Scripture, 
the people of God cry out, when will the son come? When will he come? And he came. And his name was Jesus Christ the Lord. And friend, this morning you can know and trust that God keeps his promises. He keeps every one of his promises in Christ alone. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, we pray this morning as we gather as your people that these truths would be sealed in our soul. We would know that Christ came into this world to save sinners of whom each of us deserve the title of foremost. Let us see the true victory we have through Christ our Lord as we gather at his table. Let us give you praise and glory through his name. Amen.